and people have said, do you ever look back and do you ever like miss being a SEAL? And what I can say is at any junction in my life, I've liked what I was doing so much that I never look back. People talk about like medical training, like it's some kind of huge cross to bear. I loved it. I love being at medical school. I love learning this. And then I love being an intern because I was really being a doctor. I love being a resident because now I was like really taking care of people. And the one thing I would just like to, to point out here is I've seen lots of depictions from Hollywood of PTSD or veterans. And I'd like to say that almost universally, they get it wrong. The folks I treat are the salt of the earth. They're awesome and they're high functioning. They're doing their job and they just want to be a better husband or a better father or a better wife or a better mom. And I, I see this all the time where they, these aren't crazed people doing, doing horrible stuff. They're, they're great citizens holding down jobs. They are not broken stuff. And I, I think that too many times that's like a, um, an easy foil for Hollywood writers to go at. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today, we are thrilled to embark on a new adventure here on Pure Spectrum. This is gonna be the first episode of our new guest host series. We're gonna invite back some of our most popular past guests, ask them to pick out someone they'd like to speak with, and hand over the microphone. As Keith and I have learned over the past few years, there really is an art and craft to interviewing. Getting a chance to play on the field has also given us a deeper appreciation and admiration for the true masters of the game. Masters such as Larry King, who recently passed away, and his very close friend Cal Fussman. Cal, as you know, is our most recent guest on the podcast. And as I remarked last time, one of my favorite episodes of any podcast was Cal Fussman interviewing his good friend Larry King on The Tim Ferriss Show. It was a chance for someone like me to listen to two masters discuss their craft, how they got into it, telling war stories. It was really interesting. And I think these types of conversations actually happen all the time in all sorts of different fields. The only thing is we don't usually get to listen into them. And that's something we want to change. That's something we want to experiment with here on the show. So today we are happy to have our good friend and past guest, Dr. Robert Adams, back with us. As you may recall, Bob is a former U.S. Navy SEAL and command surgeon for the Army's Elite Delta Force. A recently retired family physician in the UNC Health System, Bob is also the author of two books, Six Days of Impossible, which we talked about earlier with him, and his most recent book, Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. Bob's guest today is his good friend and former colleague, Dr. Sean Mulvaney. Sean is also a former U.S. Navy SEAL turned Army physician. Their conversation is going to take us all around the world, from the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan to a surprise birthday party for Colin Powell aboard a U.S. Navy warship, and much, much more. But more importantly, Bob and Sean will spend considerable time discussing PTSD, what we currently know about it, and how it is being treated. They also spend time on a new and promising treatment called Stellate Ganglion Block, SGB. This is something Sean specializes in and has treated hundreds of veterans, trauma survivors, and others suffering from the effects of PTSD, including Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer, whose treatment by Sean was dramatically featured in a recent 60 Minutes piece. 
This episode was a lot of fun, and Keith and I are both really excited about some of the ideas we have coming up for new episodes and new ways to use this format. And let us know what you think. You know, how did we do? How did Bob do? And what ideas do you have for guest hosts and guests? We will love to hear them. Keep them coming. And with that said, let's get started. I am absolutely uh, excited beyond the belief to have an opportunity to have a full hour at least with an old uh, compadre from the the Army medical residency days. We actually did not know each other when we were Navy SEALs together, but we do share the unique uh, title of Army Colonel Navy SEAL. That's uh, caused some confusion in the various military units we've served in the past. So, Sean, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks for asking me to be here. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it's been hard getting here because you are so busy. I went through all the different boards of directors and committees and private practice opportunities that you're doing. And I can, I'm just pleased we got the time to talk. And I want to start because I think our, our, our medical audience, and there's about 3,000 listeners, I'm told, uh, want to know a little bit more about you and the uniqueness that we, you and I share in part that we were in the Navy and then we were in the Army. And we were in the Navy, we were combatants when we were in the Army, we were doctors. You were in Bud's class 148 from 1987 to 1988. And then you served eight years in the Navy SEALs. And um, tell me about the decision to go to the, to the SEAL teams. What, what, what took you there? It, it was very interesting. I sat down and I was um, on a Southwest flight and I was sitting on an aisle seat and down the hallway comes a kind of a uh, little salt and pepper, uh, distinguished looking gentleman with a Navy helmet bag. And he sits down next to me. And I was, I was reading a book on counterterrorism. And at some point we struck up a conversation because I looked over, he asked me about the book and I looked over at him. I said, hey, you're a somebody. So before I embarrass myself, who are you? And it was Admiral Watkins, who was the N1 of the Navy. The, you know, he was so in charge of all personnel in the Navy. And it and coming around about way, I'm a, I was a naval officer. What'd you do? I was a SEAL. He's like, let me guess. You were from a northern tier state and you were a swimmer or a water polo player. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly who I was. He goes, because that's who gets through buds. Um, that's our overwhelming demographic. And he's like, if you can think of any way that we can help get other folks from other demographics through buds, please give me a call. And he handed me his car. So I was... <laughs> I was a swimmer, a competitive swimmer from, I grew up in New England and then, um, and I wanted to find a way to get paid to ice climb. That was kind of one of my things. And I was going to enlist in the Navy to go to the, even I remember as a, as a, as a young kid, everybody thing was about Apollo, but I remember watching the UDT guys jumping out of the helicopter and swimming over to the capsule and getting the astronauts out. And I remember as a kid sitting down in front of the TV, asking my dad, who are those guys? what's that? That job looks fun. He's like, those are underwater demolition team guys. So the seed was planted early on, but um, basically I was active. I was outdoors. I was a skier and climber uh, and, a, and a swimmer. And the, the job just appealed to me on, on multiple levels. And I was going to enlist and go in, uh, but I was competitive for a Navy ROTC scholarship, which I got, and I ended up just going to Boston University. When I got to Boston University, I thought, I was told it was, it was too competitive to become a SEAL officer. So for the first two years, I resigned myself to being a Navy pilot. 
Um, but then I said, screw it. With the help of one of my naval um, naval advisors, said, screw it, I'm going to go for it. I want to be a SEAL. So I actually got to do something that was unheard of, which was as a midshipman, I did a, a Navy ROTC midshipman, a six-week internship at SEAL Team 2, where I actually deployed with training with them. And they didn't know what to do with me because I was such an unusual animal. They ne never had a midshipman there. And I jumped with them. I shot with them. I was went down to Pearl River and did riverine warfare. I went out to the Nylon, California and did desert warfare. So I was hooked. And then with that letter of recommendation from SEAL Team 2, I got into BUDS. I was one of the not that many officers get picked up. I was, so I wasn't the smartest, handsomest one, but I that was certainly didn't take no for an answer. Got to BUDS and and made it through with my uh, classmates and really never looked back. What a, what a fantastic way to, to start life. And what it is, it's I, um, what people don't realize it is, it's not just a great way of life and a great community, but you finally get this um, good housekeeping seal of approval on your forehead. You've been vetted, you're a vetted guy and you don't really have to prove yourself anymore. And that is such a huge gift to give a young man to say like, just, I'm a SEAL and I don't really need to like prove or posture or anything. I can cry at romantic comedies if I want. I can do whatever I want. I'm a SEAL. Every now and then my wife will give me crap about something even now today. And I'll look over and go, SEAL doctor. I can do it. I can, I can wear, I, my clothes don't have to match. <laughs> and what was your first assignment out of BUDS? I went right to uh, SEAL team two. And I just had like, I, I frankly, Bob, I just had some good luck. Uh, some, and I will just go ahead and say that some of that good luck was um, running into you and finding you as a young physician. And you're, you're a great mentor to me. So I just want to, I want to throw that one out there as, as we move forward with this interview. But, did but um, I, am I looking at that SEAL Team 2 experience and seeing that you were a platoon commander for five years? I, I had multiple platoons, uh, but, but I was lucky. Listen to this luck I had. I showed up and I went straight over to, they deployed me straight away to, um, to Flintlock in Europe. So I was based out of Macrahaner, Scotland and had like a, in Norway and had a great experience there. Came back and this is during Operation Blue Spoon was getting spun up. And so that they had a couple of guys from the Mountain Arctic Warfare Platoon that were supposed to go and climb um, Mount McKinley with the Elmendorf uh, pararescue men. And they couldn't go anywhere because they were frozen because they were on on the you know close launch for Blue Spoon, so they're like, "Hey, new guy, go climb McKinley." And I was like, "Yahoo!" <laughs> so I took off and with a notorious, uh, not just notorious, but a, a famous SEAL, um, uh, Mad Dog Jim Madison, and he and I went and uh, climbed McKinley. And actually, we participated in a couple rescues on there, which was just a great way to. And who could ask for more than that? came back and started uh and then i actually went to um when i got back from that they said hey here's your choices you can be assistant operations officer and, and back in those days that meant writing message traffic on you know yellow legal pads and doing admin work or you can go to ranger school because we actually want to get some seals qualified to handle company-sized operations and see if that's any useful i'm like ranger school so I got to go to ranger school and then I went right from, and actually I, I will not poo poo that experience at all as a seal. I, I told people, it was like, I went and got my PhD in commando, but that I went back and got my high school diploma in soldier in good soldiering. I mean, ranger school was good soldiering. And uh, we did live fire company size missions, um, jumping in at night and assaulting through targets. And 
it was like no kidding. It was good stuff. We ran How across, much weight did you lose? <laughs> I lost 20 pounds. I had veins popping out of my thighs. Exactly. Because they did not believe in feeding you. But it was still, hey, at the end of it, I still did 20 pull-ups. Um, but it was, uh, then from there, I went to my first winter mountain and Arctic warfare platoon, and I was the assistant officer in charge. And that was just a phenomenal experience. And we trained up for um, desert warfare, including, you know, warfare in, in, you know, Norway and these kind of horrible, you know, Cold War style one-way missions, you know, skiing in to take out some part of the USSR. And, uh, and where there was no, really no hope of extraction. And then from there, from after all that training, went straight into Desert Storm and uh, in Desert Storm, it was, hey, it was very interesting times. And we were employed um, off of aircraft carriers, off of destroyers. And we did, uh, our platoon did a lot of interesting missions. Um, and that was, that was like a, a great way to kind of cut your teeth as a young SEAL officer. And but you know, I, yeah. when I, I wanted to know if you share this same thought process. When I look back on all the many, many, many jobs I've done in my long life uh i think seal platoon commander ranks number one two and three as the best experiences i've ever had it is formative it is absolutely formative in your development as a person to be on the pointy end of the stick to deal with like honestly like i the, some of the things you deal with are very prosaic but they're they're telling moments i had uh i had an episode where you know somebody was using a racial epithet they were as a, as a matter of course, and I sat him down in front of the whole platoon. And I said, if you do that again, you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent that UCMJ allows, period. And if I hear anybody else say it, you've all now been warned. And it's these little things where you're like relatively young guy, but you're standing up and you're, you're making the right calls. And then you know that you have to train hard and well, because you're going to be the one to write the letter to their parents if they die in combat. And you want to know in your heart that you did the best job you could. And you understand and that's we're it. talking about a lieutenant, lieutenant JG, and lieutenant, a junior officer in the military. Yeah. These are heavy, heavy lifts. Yeah, heavy lifts at very young ages. Which, but they're formative. They, formative. they, they do shape you into a person that you like. Which is, I don't know if many people get to say that. So tell me why, after eight years of of the most fun that anybody can have with their clothes on, you decided to seek a career in medicine. Well, um, I'll, be, I'll be quite forthright on this. I was always interested in medicine as a young person, but I just was not ready for another eight years in fluorescently lit spaces. I was too full of piss and vinegar. So one was when I was younger, I just wasn't ready. Um, two was as a SEAL officer, you know that you start to get promoted out of the fun. You start to become more training officer, more operations officer. And your time in the field, you can see in that crystal ball that it's going to be less and less and less as time goes on. It's still a great job. You're still amongst it, but it's, it kind of starts to taper. And I wasn't ready for that. But the, between um, you and Galen and the, all the rest of the listeners, I came back from a deployment to Somalia. And this was back in the days before there was email. There was no you know, texting. It was letters took one month to go back and forth. I had been married for two years and lived with my wife. Um, wait a minute, three years and lived with my wife about three months out of that time period, just because we were always gone, always training. And um, 
and you come home from deployment and you're always really psyched to get home and see your wife and your young wife and everything's going to be great. And I came home and it was, it was the opposite of great. It was bad. It was a huge drop off that cliff. And I kind of said, look, I guess if I want to stay married, I've got to figure out, is there something else I can do? Because I don't think this is going to work. And I wanted, I, I love this woman. I still, I'm still, you know, here we are 29 years later, we're still married, um, have three great kids, but that didn't happen by accident. And I looked in the crystal ball and I said, I saw a lot of team guys getting their teenage sons who they didn't even know out of jail, you know, and their families were falling apart. And I said, you know, maybe there's another path for me. And so I, I talked to my wife. I said, look, would you support me, you know, leaving this and, and going into medicine? And she did. And so with, with her support, I, you know, made a pretty big career change. And it was, and it was, uh, Honestly, at each point now, I, I can look back and people have said, do you ever look back and do you ever like miss being a SEAL? And what I can say is at any junction in my life, I've liked what I was doing so much that I never look back. So like look back from being, you know, uh, people talk about like medical training, like it's some kind of huge cross to bear. I loved it. I love being at medical school. I love learning this. And then I love being an intern because I was really being a doctor. I love being a resident because now I was like really taking care of people. So at any, and now like I retired from, you know, 31 years in the military and people say, well, do you miss it? And I was on free fall status. So I was 54 years old and I've only been out a couple of years. And they said, do you miss it? And I'm like, you know what? I get to be in clinic every day now. I'm not, you know, I'm not in clinic two days a week because I'm running, you know, clinics around the world. I get to be in clinic every day. And this is awesome. And so, and we're doing research, we're moving things forward. So yeah, although I love my time as a SEAL, I really did. It was formative. It was perfect. But it's How really were you it was just a good start. Started medical school. What age? I was did thirty. You I was thirty years old when I started, Bob. You know, I was thirty-six when I started, having put fourteen years under my belt doing other things. And what I discovered, and I wonder if you—I'm sure you've experienced the same thing—is that having had life experiences similar to what you've already described, to include combat and dealing with what's right and wrong in the world you became a better doctor from day one entering med school. Oh yeah, I was gonna say your question is a rhetorical one, I'm sure, because actually having life experience and when you're dealing with people who are in pain, who you have to, who, whose lives are falling apart, um, of course, having that life experience, that, that true, you know, on the kind of edge life experience um, helps you be a better physician. I mean, helps you, you're, you're in a different place in your life. You understand younger people. The only, you, you, maybe you don't understand old people yet, but there's no question it makes you a better physician. Did you have a child when you went to medical school? Let's see. I showed up at medical school with the one, my son, who's actually now a, a Navy EA-18 pilot out on Whidbey Island. Um, so he's a jet pilot landing on carriers. And then, uh, so I had him, but I had my two daughters when I was actually in medical school. It was, a, it was a great experience. Well, and you have one other advantage over me. You went to the Uniformed Services of Health Sciences Academy, which means you were actually getting paid to go to medical school. It was I, great. I had full I health benefits, getting paid. I had a house in Rockville. So yeah, it was a, a huge load off to know that, hey, my family was taken care of. We had, we had, made the best healthcare in the world. And, um, and also after being a SEAL, being a medical student wasn't that hard. You know, exactly. like, even just the pure number of hours, it just, it was almost like, this isn't bad, you know? 
Well, quite honestly, after SEAL training, almost nothing's that hard. But I, I do want to fast forward to you completing med school and showing up on Fort Bragg for your residency in, in family medicine. And, as, and I want to tell the audience how we met. I was walking down the hall as a brand new staff officer, and you were walking down the hall as a brand new intern, and we're both wearing an Army uniform with the great big gaudy black embroidered Navy SEAL insignia on it. And passing in opposite directions, you and I each saw each other simultaneously and each stopped, pointed at each other and going, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, and it's so it's always so interesting, Bob, how, how it, we all know this is true, like how, and people in other occupations do this, but I think SEALs do it, do the butt stiffing much more canine fashion than other people. We, we sniff the butts right away. We're like, what buds class were you in? you know this guy? Do you know this guy? A couple bona fides later, you're like, okay, you're one of me, yourself. You're, you're, not, you're not the other, you're yourself. And uh, yeah, we, we did that like same butt sniffing right there. And then we're like, okay, we're, we're simpatico. Mark we're John, how can we help and each you, other? Exactly. You want to help me out? You had me over to your house for dinner. It was, it was nice. Well, we probably delivered a baby or two together, and sure did. Uh, you know, just what a, what a great time we had in Fort Bragg it was a marvelous experience. But I left you um, as a resident to go off and play with the Delta Force Special Operations guys, and you went on after your first assignment following your residency as a battalion surgeon for the Special Forces Group in Stuttgart, Stuttgart Germany. Tell us about that. Oh, what a great place. I mean. Uh, a getting over to Germany was was honestly it was a highlight of my career. We lived out in town. We had German neighbors. My kids all went to German school and spoke German fluently. My wife speaks German fluently because when she was an army brat, she was raised in Frankfurt. Uh, my wife Lara, so um, her German was great. She was going to you know the the German equivalent of you know Elternabend, the PTA meetings for Germans, and listening to education theory. But it was a great place to live. Um, a great place to have time off because in two hours you were, you would be skiing in the Alps. I mean, it was just me or in France or, you know, my kids would summer vacation was on the French Riviera and it was just like getting in the minivan and driving there. So it was a phenomenal experience. And then operationally as a, as a, you know, young physician, it was unmatched. So from there we deployed, you know, to Iraq in combat. We declared, deployed across the, the, the Pan-Sahel region of Northern Africa. We actually ran, um, ran humanitarian aid, $8 million worth of humanitarian aid into Northern Africa and ran the programs that did it. It was really just an incredible experience. And all I see around. Bosnia and Kosovo on that list also. Sure, Bosnia that? and Kosovo. And that was very interesting. We called that uh, Chasing Elvis. So it was, <laughs> it was funny because um, when you were in Bosnia, Kosovo, I actually had a deployment with Delta Force to Bosnia and Kosovo and we we I knew you were there but of course we didn't exist so we never did get a chance to make contact but you know such different types of wars that you've been exposed to in all these different countries what's what's the one thing that you've noticed that all wars have in common huh wow that's um because they they were so different in in Bosnia it was less like U.S. forces weren't really involved in direct combat. We were almost there as the marshal service. We were there rolling up uh, people that were fomenting discord in those countries and bringing them to The Hague for trial. I mean, that was really the mission. The mission wasn't to go out and 
and kill these guys. The mission was to go out and capture these guys and, and have them stand trial. So it, was, it felt more judiciary. Um, Somalia was very interesting. The first time I was in Somalia as a SEAL because it was, um, this is a very interesting little anecdote. Uh, we were offshore on the USS Wasp, um, offshore Somalia uh, for some meeting. And Colin Powell was there uh, for, and it was his birthday and they had a birthday cake for, and he was at this time, he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He ran Operation Blue Spoon. Um, he was someone that I, I actually still really respect um, Colin Powell. Uh, and I think he's a, a phenomenal man. I thought he did a phenomenal job and it was groundbreaking. Uh, all the respect for him. But as far as Somalia goes, um, after his birthday cake, they had a question and answer period. And of course, the most dangerous thing at a question and answer period is a seaman. You know, so you have a seaman there and they're like, are there any questions? And the seaman raises his hand totally innocently, no, no guile in him. And he says, uh, yeah, General Powell, I have, I have a question. Um, we're here in Somalia and they had a famine. So we came here to help them, but now we're killing them. So I'm confused. Are we helping them or are we killing them? And he just wanted to know, you know, and, and, and I was like, I want to know. And I watched, man, I respect tap dance around this E3's question. And I was like, and that was honestly one of the other things that kind of led me towards medicine in all sincerity, Bob, when I realized I was kind of a Rottweiler at the end of a leash being held by someone that didn't necessarily understand what was going on. And, and we were using deadly force. And so I realized that they don't always know when they point us at an enemy, what the situation is. And it was a very complex situation there. It was, we were, we were going there as a nation trying to help, but it was because we didn't fully understand the depth of what was going on and how the clan system worked and, and how things were happening that we, we turned a deed into an enemy and a deed probably was someone that we should have tried to get on our side. And, and maybe we had something to do with that country plunging even deeper into chaos. Maybe, I, I don't know, but we certainly influenced that situation. It was a mess before, it was a mess when we left. I don't think we made it any better. Unfortunately, it's a mess today. Well, and so I, that I was, wanted you to say exactly that because the conversation we're starting now is gonna end up with you teaching us all more about PTSD. And what you're saying is it's a mess. What you're also saying, it's a stress. And the stories you're telling, you know, most of our listeners are going, what, what, what? But there are people that have not had to, you know, hold a pressure dressing on a bleeding compadre or, or, or charge that needs our help. And, and that's probably the one thing that you could agree, that we could agree that war does have in common is it comes with a whole lot of challenge and stress for everybody at every level. Oh boy, I got to tell you, Bob, my career ended in Syria, right? And so talk about, you know, normally every place I went at some point, whether in Iraq or in other countries, other war zones, you could find that, um, that seasoned E7, E8 soldier professional that could kind of give you the lay of the land after they'd been there for a few tours they'd say like hey this is what we should be doing syria was the one place at no level did anyone have a happy ending did anyone have a solution did anyone we were we were there it was carnage we were against in syria it was a highly skilled enemy these guys were great with mortars they were fast acting they they believed in what they were doing just like we believed in what we were doing um there's no vilifying. That's the one thing sold, good soldiers, professional soldiers, 
we don't really vilify. We we know that it's just it's you know the the it's an ugly game. Um, but they were they were skilled, and we did not have like a policy that took us to a win. And it was and what everybody that was there felt horrible about was how we treated the Kurds. Every soldier on the ground felt terrible that the only person that stood shoulder to shoulder with us, the only person that didn't cut and run were the Kurdish fighters that we were there with. And honestly, I, I feel ashamed um, of how they were ultimately and That treated. was my experience in Iraq also, an amazing population of prof true professionals. And um, I'm wondering, did you find yourself having to treat enemy combatants? Yeah, and you know, and it was, uh, as a physician, I did not feel, um, any conflict. I mean, it was it was a clear prioritization. I was always going to treat uh, U.S. and allied forces um, first. And that was, you know, you're supposed to treat by acuity. I was always going to make sure that our folks were good. And then I was going to look towards enemy combatants. But once we were treating them, we treated them every bit as well and humanely. And they learned to play the games. Like there isn't a single physician that served in Iraq that doesn't know when you have Iraqi detainees that there's going to be one or two of them that are going to say, I'm having chest pain just to get out of there. Because they know, they all learn, just say you're having chest pain. They have to do this stuff. And um, so they, they learn their, their games. But we, honestly, there was no, I never witnessed any kind of Abu Ghraib. No, of course we, not. And, and we I treated really them to hear you mainly, say um, exactly and we treated that. them well and to the, to the best that we could. And the, the only thing that was really not the best that, I don't know if it, that's even a fair statement, but when we would hand those soldiers off to other Iraqi hospitals for follow-on care, we didn't know what happened, but we also knew it wasn't optimal. But then again, that was the same, unfortunately, for Iraqi civilians that we were treating as well. So it's not, I don't think there was a disparity in how enemy troops were treated versus Iraqi civilian troops were treated. Uh, and I love being the interviewee in this situation, just so that you could say exactly what you said. There's a chapter in my book about treating a multiple gunshot wound injury of a enemy combatant and how proud I was to be part of an American military medical uh, organization that that cared as much about any injured man, you know, whatever uniform he was wearing, just as you just said. So, you know, God bless America and what we stand for. Fast forward ahead to you did two fellowships. That's amazing. Right after your uh, battalion surgeons tour, you found yourself at Fort Belvoir in a sports medicine fellowship. And yeah, just to go over like a, fel a fellowship is additional training past your your primary specialty. So if you're like trained in uh, general surgery or if you're trained in internal medicine or, or as I was in family medicine, and then you go on to do additional training, specialized training. So in this case, they were, they were another year long uh, bits, each one of them. So why sports medicine first? Um, there was no doubt that what I saw as I was, um, I actually... I, um, my daughter is looking to go into the, the health field. And so we, we go back and talk about this. And she said, would you have done anything different? And I'm like, absolutely not. Um, when I was in medical school, I was, I was a, because I went there as a SEAL in most of the rotations I did, I had very good rapport with um, the staff that were treating me. And so I ended up into being in an enviable position of being able to kind of pick where I wanted to go. And they, they were happy to have me there. I, um, I chose family medicine. And at the time that I made that choice, I made, I feel like I made an excellent choice because when I was in Africa, um, I was able to, there was nothing that wasn't in my wheelhouse, including combat medicine, high-end combat medicine was in my wheelhouse. 
-hmm. tropical medicine was in my wheelhouse. Delivering babies was in my wheelhouse. It was dental pediatrics. care was in my wheelchair. I mean, so pediatrics. And when you're running aid to Africa, what do you run? You, you take care of moms and their babies because that's where you have the biggest impact. You don't take care of chronic injuries. So um, my training really served me well as a special operations physician. It, it couldn't have been better. But what my soldiers and sailors and Marines had for injuries were musculoskeletal injuries. And I knew that I needed further training in that. And so and one of the things that happened was when I went to the sports medicine fellowship, uh, one of my mentors um, helped me get there, Dr. Fran O'Connor, who's a, currently a professor of medicine at Uniform Services. Very University. famous sports medicine doctor. He's a great guy. And, uh, and, we were, and he started the sports medicine fellowship program in the military. And one day early on in the, in the year, we're going for a run together. And uh, so he's like, show Sean, what do, you, what do you think of the sports medicine fellowship program? And I said, Fran, I, I know it's your baby, but this is an ugly baby. And he's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, look, I go, I go, what are my, how are my credentials going to be different from when I came in here? What am I going to be able to do that I can't do now? I can do joint injections now. I can do tendon injections now. I can do, I can do exercise treadmill testing. I can do, you know, like I went through the, all this list of things that I was like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get better at diagnosing these things, but what are we doing to treat this? I said, and, I, and this was actually a moment in military medicine. I'll just go ahead and say it, even though it sounds a little self-serving. I was like, we need to do um, ultrasound, you know, medical ultrasound, diagnostic ultrasound to see what's wrong with people. Because I had already self-trained myself in ultrasound when I was over in Germany with an ultrasound that we had to do um, focus abdominal sonography for trauma. And I was using it. I bought a book on musculoskeletal ultrasound, started teaching myself. I'm like, we need to be doing that. And we need to be doing ultrasound guided injections to do better care for these folks rather than just sending their back pain to surgery or to PT or I go, we need to have an interim step and we need to be able to treat people downrange with good effective medicine rather than sending them back to the rear. And so we actually, Fran, to his credit, uh, made alterations to the, the curriculum and we changed how we do sports medicine in the military. And now ultrasound diagnostics and ultrasound guided procedures are now embedded within the curriculum and it's it's fantastic to see. A lot of other doctors don't know the depth and breadth of family practice training, including obstetrics, where we did all our own obstetrics ultrasounds. You know, we got to look at pregnant women and their babies and their fluid levels and, you know, right up to the from conception to the to birth. So you already had a, you know, a baseline and ultrasound were able to use it in, in your your musculoskeletal treatments. But I'm kind of interested that your first assignment after that was a flight surgeon. You got six years in um, Fort Meade, Maryland. And that's when you sort of continued to build on your procedural skills. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we, I did straight away with the, I was uh, assigned to a special operations unit. Um, and it was, um, they valued returning people to duty as quickly as possible for, with an eye on long-term results. So I had this very deep support by the command for, the, for doing things better. And so that was my mandate, uh, safer, safe, evidence-based, but better. And so if you looked at um, spine care in the military, there was no role for anything short of surgery. There was either physical therapy or surgery. And the surgeries, we know there's this thing called FBSS, failed back surgery syndrome, 
And why is that? Because some people just go downhill and you literally end their careers and their lives, put them in chronic pain for the rest of their life. So I was like, we need to find a better way to deal with this. So I got trained in uh, a technique that's been around since the 1940s called prolotherapy. Um, prolotherapy is using a proliferant, like 15% dextrose to focus the body's ability to heal. It has level, it now has like over 14 level one randomized clinical trials supporting its use. This is safe, good medicine. I enjoy routine success with it. I'll just go ahead and say, I treated my wife's neck which that's the patient that doesn't go home and her neck got better. So, I mean, <laughs> I've treated my mother-in-law. I mean, th these are people that aren't going away and they, they got complete relief of pain. I'm not trying to like pump anything here, but what I'm saying is that having good, viable, safe, non-operative treatment options are very important. Yeah, so but that listen, was one of- you, just, just last year, you were on 60 Minutes. You are now a national celebrity as the first doctor ever to prove that the stellate ganglion injections work. And it happened while you were there. You did 350 at least stellate ganglion box as a man right out of his sports medicine fellowship. Tell me how you discovered that and developed it there. Oh, this is actually, now we're, now we're getting into something that's you know, near and dear. So in my current clinical practice in Annapolis now, we do, um, joints and spine and so that's a standard thing but we also are doing still doing clinical research on treatment of post-traumatic stress injury or post-traumatic stress disorder is the more common term um the way i got into it was um the, the same way we get into a lot of things in the military you look to the left and right and there's no one else doing it so i had um one of my soldiers came to me and he had had and this is like a kind of a classic story I was evaluating him after a car accident. So he had wrecked his car <clears throat> middle of the day. And I said, what happened? He's like, I fell asleep at the wheel. I'm like, why'd you fall asleep at the wheel? He's like, I'm taking Seroquel. Now, Seroquel is an antipsychotic. And I was like, this is a person with a, a high level security clearance, who's a high level operator. And I was like, why are you taking that drug? Cause, and he had gone to another psychiatrist to get treatment for his long-term PTSD. Um, and his symptoms were really bad and he couldn't sleep. He was having nightmares. And he went on to describe what had happened. This was from Desert Storm. So this is, he got this when I was still, um, basically still a SEAL. And, cause I was there at Desert Storm. And he um, was kind of a classic scenario. He was a army infantry man. It was during the ground combat phase of the war. He was assaulting through a bunker complex. So he was killing in close quarters, went into a bunker complex where a door uh, had been rigged with explosives and exploded backwards on him, uh, briefly knocking him unconscious. He got up and continued to assault through the target. And so at the end of that, really probably some of the most pitched battles of that encounter, um, at the end of that pitched battles, they do what, and I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm gonna say the things that other soldiers won't say, they, when the blood is up, sometimes you do things that you're very ashamed of. And they desecrated some of the bodies. This is something people don't talk about. But it's those shameful acts on top of killing in close quarters, on top of being in immediate peril, on top of an element of TBI, a traumatic brain injury when the door blew up back on him. All of those things serve to take his fight or flight nervous system 
and put it into a loop where the brain is amping the body and the body is amping the brain and he could not break out of that. Take the shameful acts and that sears it all in place. So um, this is actually the classic recipe or formula for, for, for combat related PTSD. There are other recipes. This is one of the most dense toxic Halberno sauce of the recipes that you can get. So he had described where he would be driving down the road and he would, people don't understand. Let me just say what a flashback is. People think they know what a flashback is. They think it's like a memory or a dream. It's not. And it's, it's very difficult to conceptualize um, for many people. A flashback is a memory without a timestamp that comes back unwanted. And it comes back as a complete packet of memory. So that means when he was driving down the road, he would get a smell of cordite and then he would actually feel a blast wave hitting his body. And he would have the same anxiety of, of when he was unconscious and, and unable to fight and defend himself in combat. This comes back. You don't want it to come back. You don't wish it to come back. Something re-triggers it. You, it may be a smell. It may be a sight. It may be burning trash on the side of the road. And when it happens, it's not a memory. It's a now. It's happening again at the moment. And this is something people without PTSD have no concept that it's not like they're remembering combat. They're in combat. They're in a very perilous, most perilous situation that most people will ever be in their life. They're in it. And it's not a memory. It's a now. And that is part of the loop where the brain is amping the body. When I say the brain, the central autonomic network, these areas of the brain, you know, anterior signal and gyrus or amygdala, there multiple web of things that control that fight or flight response, communicates to the body through the cervical sympathetic chain, commonly known as the stellate ganglion. And then it communicates to the, when, to your blood, to your, the very, to the pericyte level, which are cells which surround your blood vessels. So people think it has something to do with adrenaline, but it doesn't. And let me explain this. So if you've ever been driving on a wet road at night, and the person in front of you slams on the brakes and you realize you slam on your brakes and you're hydroplaning and you are about to impact that car and you get that whoosh, that feeling of you're completely amped. Well, that feeling is not, if that was adrenaline, adrenaline would get released and then it'd take on average two minutes to circulate around your body. That's not adrenaline. What's happening there is your amygdala, which is part of your brain, which is the, like the early warning system, all sensory input has a branch that goes to the amygdala. It recognizes imminent danger, and that activates the sympathetic nervous system. It goes down at the speed of neural conduct through that the cervical sympathetic chain and to the body at a cellular level. Changes happen all over the body. Instantaneously. Now, and it's a very important for our survival. And so when that, boom, when that gets amped like that, what can happen, unfortunately, is that, and the way I explain it, I know I'm getting a little tangent here, Bob, so you can stop me anytime, but people don't believe that the body talks to the brain, but if you've ever clenched your fist long enough, you'll become anxious. And if you take that same fist and open it up, an open palm, put it in your, on your thigh, you'll become more relaxed. You told yourself to clench your fist and you told yourself to open your hand, but you still have this response where the body is talking to the brain. Everyone thinks the brain's in charge. So this two-way conversation in the cervical sympathetic chain between body and brain, if we can interrupt that, we're taking the equivalent of a computer with a blue screen of death. What's the matter with that computer? It's in a loop. 
It's stuck in a loop that it can't get out of. And if you can just unplug it and plug it back in, it comes back on at normal factory settings and everything's fine. You don't throw those computers out and there's nothing wrong with the hardware or software. Same, it sounds too simple, same thing that's happening where the central autonomic network is getting amped by the body and the body is getting amped by the central autonomic network. When you disrupt that communication, unplug it with a long acting anesthetic for several hours, we see in functional MRI, we see on SPECT, we see on other functional imaging that these areas of the brain responsible for this sympathetic response detune. These neurotransmitters are dropping down to baseline levels. The same thing is happening in the body. And so when that long acting anesthetic that we injected for the stellate ganglion block wears off in a couple of hours, it comes back on, the loop has been broken and it's back at factory settings. And that. I have to comment on something. I watched you on 60 Minutes as, as did uh, Colin just uh, yesterday and today. And when you were treating Dakota Myers, our Medal of Honor winner Marine, and I watched you give the injection and you commented in the introduction that the results are almost instantaneous. I was tremendously as a physician impressed when his first words were, I can breathe because yeah. that's what stress takes away from you. you can't Bob, I, I've seen this where people, they, they, their diaphragm becomes locked up and they can't take an abdominal excursion with their breath. And they just, and they think that that's normal. And they just, and they're so locked up. Um, and then what they notice, one of the first things they notice is they can take in a deep breath. And it's, it, I've had so many people like comment on that. I mean, after, I've now treated over 1800 cases for this, um, 1800 people for this indication, all without a single serious adverse event. Um, but I get these plethora of responses now, and I, I really feel like I need to start like collecting these subjective experiences more so than just the, the, the papers that we publish. All right, Colin, my apologies. I'm going off. I'm going off uh, script here because something just that's so unusual, here. Bob. You never ah. do that. That's your job. I'm working with a company that's doing um, vagus nerve stimulation, and their device just got uh, emergency authorization for use in COVID-19 patients because. Vegas nerve stimulation seems to help with diaphragmatic function and breathing and they're saving lives with it. Has any of your research indicated that your stellate ganglion block might be a useful therapy for uh, our COVID-19 breathing problem patients? Well, I have treated um, healthcare providers who have been you know, working in ICUs and, but in this case, I was treating more the the symptoms of stress and and really of post-traumatic stress for them being you know feeling that they're in you know close peril and putting their family in peril and everything that goes with that so i've treated um healthcare providers with silly ganglion block more to treat the associated anxiety um however what you're saying about the vagus nerve is extraordinarily interesting because when we block the cervical sympathetic chain there is no doubt that there is also spread into the vagus and if I was really hard pressed to say, are the results that I see from blocking the vagus or the sympathetic chain, an honest physician would have to say, we can't tell the difference. The other thing I see is that I've done specific, localized, very specific vagus nerve blocks, and we see many of the same effects from doing a cervical sympathetic chain block. Now, the reason why for that is that um, really this, the vagus nerve, which is primarily parasympathetic, and the sympathetic um, nervous system, they're dirty. 
they're not, it's not, the, the cervical sympathetic chain is not all sympathetics. It's at least 20% parasympathetic fibers. And same with the vagus nerve. It is not 100% parasympathetic fibers. So there's crossover. And in an animal that we're closely related to, like the horse, there's just an autonomic trunk. There's just one trunk. They're all together. It's not, it's not separated out. So you can see evolutionarily that these are probably much closer. And I think that if you have um, academic integrity, you have to allow for the possibility that these could be uh, vagus nerve symptoms. Now the vagus nerve, in, the, in my research, of course, I'm looking at all autonomics, not just sympathetics. I explain things in terms of sympathetics because it's easier, but vagus is phenomenally interesting because vagus nerve controls our immune response. And then there's other things that are going on that we're finding out that are just sound incredibly crazy almost, where your, your vagus nerve system or vagus the wanderer, which has a lot to do with the gut and the gut neural system, um, it actually is essentially sampling what's going on in our gut, which is crazy. The gut is directly inter uh, interacting with the brain. The inside of the gut is interacting. So whether or not it's these autoimmune functions can be modulated with vagus nerve or, you know, of course, any kind of digestive, but also just any kind of immune modulation. So I think that the autonomic nervous system is a very untapped resource in medicine as far as manipulating the autonomic nervous system. And kind of right now we're, we're the equivalent of, it's like you're handing a five-year-old a hammer and there's a parking lot full of new cars. We're just walking around banging on shit. Sorry, we're banging on stuff and making dents. And we're like, hey, look, something happened, you know? So I think that we're gonna find as we become more sophisticated with what's going on that um, we're gonna be able to better map this. But what's happening now is we all recognizing that these, that resetting this autonomic nervous system is very important. Well, let, me, very, jump, let very, me jump in here and say, you didn't answer my question. As you said, maybe, and you and I both know that Vegas and stellate ganglion treatments, both electrically and chemically, are a untapped research area that is moving forward rapidly. And I was distressed to hear, as we were getting ready for this phone call, that you are, as a private practice physician, having trouble with getting the medical reimbursement system to recognize, acknowledge, and reimburse these literally life-saving therapies. Tell us about that. Yeah, so on a, on a policy level, um, right now for the indication of post-traumatic stress disorder, the stellate ganglion block is not a covered service under any insurance or major insurance provider that I know of. Um, so we have situations where people are, uh, either if they want the treatment, they either have to pay out of pocket or they have to count on the largesse of organizations that uh, I know I've worked with several organizations that have um, paid for a lot of, a lot of veteran care, er, <clears throat> veteran care, but still it feels like this is a, we now have a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA. So a, a level one trial showing efficacy of this. There are 20 papers in the literature showing safety and showing, um, benefit. So stellate ganglion block for PTSD is not, it has a lot of information and a lot of peer-reviewed literature supporting its use. And I think that 
I don't I don't want to sit there and just and pout. I think that the insurance companies move at a very slow pace. I think that 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 slowness is many times justified. But in this case, this is my let me get to my central core beef. My core beef is um, that we have people who have had maximal medical treatment. So they come to me and they're on four psychoactive medications with no help there and they're they're PCL5 is the, the, the instrument that we use. It's a questionnaire that's been validated to show the presence or absence of PTSD. And they have very high or elevated, horrible PTSD symptoms. And they've been to multiple inpatient and outpatient treatment, veterans and non-veterans alike. And these people, once you're at a high enough score, they are all thinking of killing themselves. It is not, and the thing is, I don't even ask until after they're already doing better because I know this is true. And I can tell you, especially in um, military is very close to how they behave, to law enforcement is very close to how firefighters respond. Um, and these are problem solving people. They, they're not in the positions that they're in because they don't solve problems. And when the symptoms get really bad, they can't stay on the X. They cannot stay where they're at. And so they're gonna try to get off through other methods. And if they can't, then they're gonna kill themselves. And so when you see people with really bad treatment, uh, it's, it's, it's an emergency. So why would you not take these, the, the medical literature that is all highly supportive of celiac ganglion block for PTSD, why would you not say, hey, all the stuff that we did didn't work, let's, let's try this one. It seems to be safe, let's, let's just try it because you are in a tough spot. And that is what I don't see happening. Even though there's so much evidence, I understand their, their reluctance to, um, some, of, some of them are very threatened by things they don't understand. Some of them are very, um, it could be like a rice bowl issue. Like they're worried like, hey, we can't have other doctors taking care of PTSD because that's how we make our money. They don't understand. I don't want their patients. I just want to help their patients and hand them right back. Um, well, and, and, and the reason I asked that question is there might be an opportunity for emergency use authorization, you know, in this world of COVID and FDA looking for better ways to save lives, you know, the putting in a plug for the company called ElectroCore, they got that uh, emergency use authorization for COVID because of the vagal nerve stimulation helping with breathing. I wonder if there's an emergency use authorization possibility for your stellate ganglion block, if it helps with uh, respiratory distress. Any thoughts there? Um, number one, I don't know that it does that. And I think okay. that really you have to do, you know, some larger scale. And I, I, I am, um, I'm an associate professor of medicine. I'm a, I am not a slave to medical evidence, but it is an important and potent tool. And you cannot make claims. And if you want to make claims, then you need to back them up by publishing in the medical literature. And you need to have peer reviewed, look at this and say whether or not this is reasonable or not. That's the rules and, that, and I follow those rules. Um, because it, we owe it to our patients to make sure that we're doing safe and responsible medicine and that's part of the peer review process. So well, first, you is, did, you did I'd, have to, I'd have to study that and see, is that really helping? So that's the first thing. Um, and then, what then you get in a situation where you're like, hey, anecdotally, you know, could this be helpful? It could be, but then you're, you have to really let the patients know, hey, although this is in, in my hands, this is a very safe procedure. Um, 
this may help, this may not help. But I, yeah, I would have a hard time making that statement at this point. Uh, well, I'm just playing that, that what if game because I, you know, I'm frustrated with the medical reimbursement system as all doctors are. And you, you know, we haven't, we haven't touched on one of your really important investigations and that is PTSD in women with sexual assault. That's, uh, you know, a lot of, um, a percentage of our, a small percentage of our population have been in combat, but a much larger percentage of our population. Is Absolutely huge. Sexual assault. So when I'm, when I'm as a researcher and as a physician, as when I'm looking at PTSD, I, I call them different buckets of trauma. So there's combat related, there's law enforcement and first responder related. Um, there is civilian trauma, like I've treated people from the Las Vegas shooting or, or heaven forbids like Sandy Hook style shooting. Um, but then there's also sexual assault. And then I call it either deep trauma or like childhood, either sexual assault or childhood you know, trauma. So that kind of deep trauma that is really very destructive because it's happening during these formative years. But sexual assault, I mean, published in the Washington Post, I mean, it's almost like one in four women have been sexually assaulted. The numbers are massive. The numbers in the military are absolutely shameful and massive. And I treated a lot of women um, with sexual assault. Sexual assault turns out to be a harder bucket of trauma to treat. And the reason why is there's so many triggers prevalent in our society. And they may be living with one of the people that's triggering them. Um, but it may be they're triggered by a strong male figure or they're triggered by, you know, every time they get on the metro and someone brushes up against them and they get re-triggered in their trauma. So sexual assault is, is challenging, but very treatable um, by most treatments for PTSD involve reducing that sympathetic tone initially. So they are subject to better to treatment. And that is exactly what stellate ganglion block does. Well, I'm excited about that is, you know, my experience most women that experience sexual assault also experience physical and emotional abuse. And those three combined are just so difficult for the brain to process and, and, and move on in, in, into a normal life. Yeah, it is, it is actually the, the trauma of that is actually absolutely horrific. And I, and I, have, I have treated, um, w without this program re-triggering people, I definitely have a, a element of my practice, which uh, has been rescued from uh, human trafficking. Wow. Um, and they are, they are it's very tough treatment, but they, they respond well. Um, we're, we're, as a species, we're pretty resilient and we can handle a lot of bad stuff. And I think that if we can just, you know, get people some leg room on their trauma, a lot of them will, will be okay eventually. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Callan, how much time do we have left? Uh, we still have over 20 minutes, 22 oh, minutes. <laughs> and since you let me interrupt here, uh, Sean, just so we can understand, I don't want to be too invasive with you know your practice, but what are we talking about the cost for a treatment like this? I mean, assuming that you don't have insurance and they're not going to pay for it anyway, what's, what's the financial hurdle we're, we're looking at? Yeah, Colin, that, that, that's actually a good question. And actually, it ties back into Bob's point of trying to get insurance to pay for this. So insurance reimbursement, a common insurance reimbursement for a stellate ganglion block for a pain condition would be, oh, maybe $250, $300. Um, and that's not in a surgery center. That's in a clinical setting because this does not have to be done in a surgical center. Right. 
unfortunately, like for my clinic, and my clinic is not fancy, I don't have lots of stuff, but for my, to meet my payroll, to meet my um, malpractice, to meet paying for my floor space and paying for my equipment and consumables, um, as in private practice, you need to be making about seven fifty an hour uh, for a practice like mine to stay open, to, to stay alive and stay um, doing the things that we need to be doing to stay in the black. So if it fell down to where, and, and so the, to direct answer your question, I have a, a tiered pricing where I, um, first responders and veterans get a, a very significant discount. And that discount really is, is, is comes out of my end of what happens here. Um, the price for a, an unaffiliated person would be $1,200. Um, and that's to have this done by, um, not only am I one of the top researchers, I'm one of the top people in this, but what do you get for that money? When you come here, I spend an hour with you. I spend an hour with you giving you insight as to why this is going to work. I spend an hour with you. And then, and then we follow them up. We follow up with them at one week. We follow up at one month. We follow up at three months. And it's that follow-up that's given me a lot of the insights that I have. What's working, what's not working. We published the first paper on doing um, a block at C6 and C4, six cervical vertebrae level, and the fourth cervical vertebrae level. And we started going with a two-level procedure, and we published the first paper on that last June. Um, it's available on my, a link to it's available on my website, but um, in the peer-reviewed literature. And we did that because there were some people that didn't respond at the C6 level, and there's significant anatomic variance in how the stellate ganglion block runs. So we, we looked at this, we followed our patients and we said, hey, these we need to start doing these at two levels because some of these people that are coming a long way to see us, we wanna be sure to give them a complete treatment. Well, now our data has led us to, we have some of the only pre-publication data, uh, which I can't go into on doing a left-sided block because we know what's interesting is that the central autonomic network is a web. It's a web inside the head and you have two cervical sympathetic chains on the left side and the right side. And they both have input to both sides of the brain. And some people are going to respond better. A, a lower level of the population, to be sure, respond about 4.5% of the population respond only on the left side. And a lot of people will respond uh, still very well on the left side. The research, the overwhelming amount of research has been done on right-sided stellate ganglion blocks only. So this is something where by us being able to follow and track our patients and, and see what's going on. And that's all rolled into part of the costs. Um, I don't think that's a huge cost in my opinion, especially when you compare it to long-term care involved with, um, you know, therapy through a psychiatrist, through other medications. I mean, to me, it sounds it's like a bargain, but pretty life-changing. And then you take someone that's about to kill themselves and now they're, they're laughing with their wife in the room in the clinic yeah. and they, they come in, they, they literally yesterday, a guy came in, uh, army veteran came in crying in, in the front room, just a mess. And his scores were there extremely elevated. And he was on the edge. As a matter of fact, he, he drove here from way out of state to get here because he was in extremis. And we treated him and he did phenomenal. Right there, the wife was like, I have my husband back. It was, it was actually, you know, I, I see this story play out multiple times a day, every day. So that was just, that was just yesterday. And, One more question. I'll let Bob go back. Um, say someone's listening to this right now, an anesthesiologist, somebody who's already doing injections. You know, this would be something in, in their capability range. 
besides not having coverage through private payers, and I'm assuming Medicare and Medicaid, same thing, they want to add this to their practice. What other barriers? I mean, is this something they could get credentialed on as, through their scope of services with a hospital? Is that going to be hard? Getting liability insurance to do the procedure in your office? It's like anything a block is a standard procedure column. So the folks that are that are already credentialed do this and continue to do it. Now, um, unfortunately, many uh, anesthesiologists or anesthesia pain, I've also done a, a fellowship in anesthesia pain. Um, when they do them, they're trained to do them under fluoroscopic or x-ray guidance. Um, I do them, I, although I learned how to do them fluoroscopically, I completely abandoned that as a practice because you, you cannot see the blood vessels and there's so much anatomic variation in the anterior neck. Not only that, the tracking of nerve roots is different. So there was a paper that was published looking at um, the effectiveness of celiac ganglion block for a different condition, chronic regional pain syndrome in the upper limb. And they compared the effectiveness of ultrasound guided to fluoroscopically guided. And it was extremely clear that ultrasound guided, uh, the folks that got the ultrasound guided injection had a much better injection. Not only that, I measured the density by two people, two independent people measured the density of the resulting Horner syndrome so that's very important. It's not just doing the procedure. It's did you actually, the Horner syndrome or changes in the eye that happens, that's an external confirmation that you got the sympathetic nervous system. So I have two people independently grade that because if you didn't know that you got a good block, how can you judge what happens next or whether or not their, what their outcome was? And I, see, I, I published a grading system on that because I saw many physicians do a block, get no Horners and say it was a good block. And I'm like, what makes you say that? So I think being honest with what's happening I spend a lot of time talking to people. And unfortunately, that's something that people that are trained as anesthesiologists, there's a reason why they went into that specialty because they like their patients to be asleep. This isn't something that's, uh, I've had many anesthesiologists just nod their head. Yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's why I did that. So this isn't like a dig or a slam, um, but you, this is a case where you actually need to talk with them and understand things. And so do I think that with specific training, they can become good at doing them for this indication? Yes, I think there is, but I think it has to be the right person. It's not a matter of slipping a needle into them and, and moving on and doing 10, you know, every 10 minutes doing them. Because I, I think that what's gonna happen is you're not gonna see the results that, that we're enjoying um, in our clinic. All right, I'll jump in here and say I had an interesting experience last night watching TV. There's a show that my wife and I enjoy. It's called The Doctor and it's a, uh, a doctor who has high-functioning, high forgetfulness, huh? Forgetfulness? No, I'm just kidding. Autism, probably some spectral <laughs> autism, <disorder>. autism, <laughs> high-functioning autism. And he's got a photographic memory, and he's fun to watch. But on the show last night, knowing we were going to have this talk today, it was all about PTSD. And on the show, they did stellate ganglion block, and I went. Yay, Sean's made it into TV another way. You know, they, I'm sure they watched your uh, uh, show, on, show on 60 Minutes, or no, I'm sorry, on 2020, and said, wow, let's make a show out of it. And they did, and it was on TV last night. Did they get it right? And was they it good? did. It was actually done very well. Actually and great. They, uh, now, it, 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 take it one step further, uh, as this guy didn't respond as well as he hoped to that particular treatment, they went to a... Um, a neurosurgical amygdala ablation procedure. And oh, I, that's, that's, that's horrible. Taking, that's taking it a little too far on. You know. So I, I have to say that that's, um, 
that's flat out bananas. I wish they had gotten it right because what we see is a, a pretty immediate and solid response. And once you're talking ablating the amygdala, this is, this is, to me, it's madness because the amygdala is absolutely essential to our life and survival. And the one thing I would just like to, to point out here is I've seen lots of depictions from Hollywood of PTSD or veterans. And I'd like to say that almost universally, they get it wrong. The folks I treat are the salt of the earth. They're awesome and they're high functioning. They're doing their job and they just want to be a better husband or a better father or a better wife or a better mom. And I, I see this all the time where they, these aren't crazed people doing, doing horrible stuff. They're, they're great citizens holding down jobs. They are not broken stuff. And I, I think that too many times that's like a, um, an easy foil for Hollywood writers to go at uh, to make them the whatever. And, but really what I see is just outstanding citizens who just want to be better Husband. This particular TV show really pushed beyond the limits of believability, but, but people don't know that. You know, these were general surgeons who suddenly decided to go into the brain and do a neurosurgical ablation of an interior brain structure with a resident in training. <laughs> and I'm going, sweetheart, this is not real. This is not possible. But I bring it up because yours, I, I like to call it your still eight ganglion block. It's not really yours, but, but you've been credited as the first person to do this and, 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 and that document report the results and a lot of other people are going to follow. And I take it one step further to say the Electrocore company that got their device approved for migraine headache treatments and cluster headache treatments had it approved by the FDA years ago, and, and the first people to okay it for reimbursement purposes was the VA and the TRICARE insurance agencies. So the civilians will follow, and they're the slowest because they're the most profit-oriented group, but you know, have you made any inroads with the VA TRICARE folks from a reimbursement standpoint? Yes, and, um, and it's one of these things that we uh, it's a multi-pronged attack and we keep going at, there's a difference here. The difference is that when you're selling a device that is um, prescribed by like a behavior health person, this um, reimbursement for behavior health reasons like PTSD are usually controlled at some level by behavior health providers, at least on the advisory board. Mm. And so they can say, mm, I don't believe in it. And believing in things or not believing in things is not a system. It's really comes down to critical thinking and what does the literature show, but people all have their own confirmation bias. And I think that this is just something that we have to overcome. Unfortunately, uh, during this period of overcoming, they're forgetting the fact that people are killing themselves at an incredibly high rate. And veterans and police officers. I, I was just treating police officers today. Um, it's, it's, and uh, I have to say like firefighters and police, they're about 10 years behind the military and their acceptance and destigmatization of um, post-traumatic stress injury. Um, and one of my standard things when I'm, when I'm talking to these folks are like, I like look at your high PL5 score. I go, this is like me looking at an x-ray of a person with a broken femur. I look at this broken femur and I'm like, yep. And I look at your high score and I'm like, it's the same. I go, the difference is the person with the broken femur doesn't feel guilty because they can't just get over it. 
and they don't feel guilty because they get up and run. They can't get up and run. I go, you feel guilty because you can't just pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and you feel guilty because of how you behave while you have this injury. It's an injury that hasn't been treated. And I, and I tell them, you have to let that guilt go. I go, it's not helping you and it's inappropriate. So you have to get around to my optic where this is an injury and we're going to treat it now. And you're going to be, you're going to get better. And it's a, that sentence, that little exchange is, is often emotional for these folks when they realize how much guilt they've been holding because they couldn't just get over this. You know, I noticed that you did a three-year, $2 million DOD-funded study that was published in JAMA showing that, you know, the PTSD ganglion block connection is there and real. They're going to put $2 million behind the study, and the study proved that it's worked. Why are we still, Colonel, uh, having problems getting the DOD to recognize and uh, fund these uh, treatments? at the individual doctor level? Well, for, I'd like to start by saying, um, to its credit, the DOD is, is funding good quality research. And on the paper that you quoted uh, that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the primary investigator on that was Christine Ray Olmsted, who does excellent research. And I was um, heavily involved in study design and study execution. But um, I think that, the getting high quality research is difficult and challenging and takes years. That study that was four years from concept to funding to publication, four years. And then what DOD turns around and says is, hey, we want another study because we just want to be sure. And you're like, whoa, that, I mean, that takes a long time to do that. And it takes a lot of effort to do that. And a lot of people are going to kill themselves before we get this right. Now, um, there are definitely areas within DOD that are doing cellular ganglion block for PTSD routinely. Um, study sites that were quoted, I know at Tripler, they're still doing it heavily. It's still available, Walter Reed, and it's still, it, as of at least a little while ago, it's still available at Longstuhl over in Germany. Longstuhl, of course, has turnover of personnel. I don't know if people there are still doing them. Um, and there are other places within DOD that are, that are offering this. So for the active duty people, they can usually find someone that can do this. And then I think it comes down to realizing that, hey, it, like, to me, this is danger close and real. And I'm seeing people, um, I'm coming in on Sundays to treat people that are about to kill themselves. Um, and so I, I see this as, uh, I'm, I'm close on this. But part of me as an academic realizes, hey, we ultimately, we owe it to our patients to make sure we're getting this right to do this right, to do the research. And although it's hard and it's a slog and it feels like people are dying while we're waiting for this research, it's, it's still gonna be the right answer. And at the end of the day, it's gonna prevail. And just think of it, Bob, everything that you know in medicine, they, they laughed Listor out of it when he said, hey, little tiny bacteria are making people sick. The guy that came up with the fact that Helicobacter pylori was actually the cause of ulcers they laughed him off the stage and ostracized him. There have not been many, medicine is a conservative organization, and there have not been many new bold ideas that were just accepted within 20 years. And I think that we're on track. We're going to patiently keep doing our duty to move this forward, and we're going to help people as much as possible. But I'm, I'm trying to get breathing room myself because when I realize how many people are getting poor care or killing themselves, it's it, it is challenging for me. 
Well, I'm going to throw this in sort of the concluding comment. You know, I was blessed with uh, almost 14 years of private practice after I retired from the Army, and you just retired in 2018 and are now discovering the fun and the horrors of private practice. So you're, you're still a babe in the woods when it comes to learning what works and doesn't work and how to negotiate the private pay for uh, performance uh, world that you live in. Uh, and you're in a private practice that's, that's new and it's growing. And you told me earlier, you've got a, a new uh, ex-military doctor joining you with a tremendous skill set. I was excited to hear that. You know, what are your plans and for, for your future there? You're in Annapolis, Maryland. What are your plans there? And how can, you know, patients knock on your door and access, you know, care? Because there's a, a well, world of people who need you. Yeah, just, let me just be clear. I am an employee of regenerative, regenerative Orthopedic Sports Medicine. My office is in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm the chief science officer for that organization. Um, and what we we have another uh, excellent physician, Colonel Jim Lynch, coming here. He'll be here one April. Um, I trained him to do stellic. He was one of my sports medicine fellows, and I trained him how to do stellic ganglion blocks. And we did a lot of those on on both SEALs and Special Forces soldiers. Um, over the years and published many papers together. And so we're going to have both of us together. We're going to continue to do research. Honestly, I, I like private practice a lot. And the reasons why is I've, I've, I've shaped my practice to do the right things for the right reasons. And we, we are able to help a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, many of the treatments that we do are not covered by insurance. And that is, that is not my issue, right? I, Prolotherapy has been around since the 1940s and is absolutely safe and changes lives. And it's for some reason it's not covered by insurance. I have no idea why. Um, there's without getting into kind of conspiracies or what's going on. Insurance companies are there to make money. They're not there to help you. And to think that they're there to help you is just a mistaken assumption. Um, but we provide excellent care. We take care of our patients. Our patients uh, enjoy overwhelmingly good results. Um, you can look us up and we have, you know, hundreds of, of five-star reviews from folks. Um, and it, and we're going to continue to provide good care. Actually, I, I really like uh, my practice. I like the people I work with. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. And yeah, I mean, there's always insurance. There's always bumps. There's always stuff. But I overwhelmingly really enjoy being a doctor still. Outstanding. Well, I'm thrilled to hear it. Like, uh, we, didn't, we didn't put this on the record, but... Uh, I've got a disability that includes some PTSD from my combat time and in a, as a doctor in a war zone, and I plan to come up and let you give me a little Stella Gandian uh, injection and see if I can smile again. Frogmen are welcome anytime. Let me just give a call. I'll get you in over lunch, the beginning and end of any clinic, same as everybody I serve with. So there's, you know, or anybody that's in trouble, we, we take care of them. And COVID hasn't shut you down yet, correct? No. No, it shut me down for two weeks, but it didn't shut my clinic down. Outstanding. That was just recent because uh, that pushed us back a little bit, but I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, actually, I feel um, um, I feel lucky. I'm not one of the long haulers. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, back in clinic full time, working out. I, I feel great. So, but it was no joke. I, I don't recommend it for anybody. <laughs> well, Sean, just to kind of wrap things up here, um, for people listening, we've got a pretty good sized audience who are non-medical professionals, just like listening. Um, and within that group, there may be people that either need help or know someone who does. And obviously, a lot of physicians and nurses and 
medical professionals listening, to answer their questions at the end, one, how can they find you, your practice? We'll put links to this up on our website. And you mentioned organizations earlier that have been helpful in helping patients reach you, dealing with some of the financial hurdles. Tell us a little bit more about the resources that are out there and what uh, what's available for folks. Well, as far as um, getting a hold of me, um, number one is uh, we're at Regenerative Orthopedic Sports Medicine in Annapolis. That's easy to find. Um, my website is Dr. Dr. Sean, S-E-A-N Mulvaney.com. And also I have another website that's SGB, the number four, PTSD.com. And both of those have a lot of information on, on all the things, on all the treatments that we do. As far as organizations, one of our, our big benefactors has been an organization called angelguard.com or angelguard. Um, and they um, have provided care to, to many veterans, um, have been very generous in their care. Um, we have had um, uh, varying uh, special forces and SEAL foundations um, support the, the, the care for their veterans. But a lot of our funding is really hunting gathering. And honestly, I've been most moved by um, many of my own patients who come to my office uh, will see a veteran, you know, leaving and they'll, they'll ask what's, you know, what's going on here. And they'll say, Hey, I want to sponsor, I want to sponsor the next three veterans. Wow. And it's the, the, wow. the generosity is, is moving. And that's not a one of that's common. And it's just, it's so, it's so moving to see, you know, that, that these are just normal people and they just want to help. Well, we'll get the links up to all of those on the website in case someone's driving right now, listening to it. We'll, <laughs> we'll have it there for you. Um, and, uh, Bob, I'll let you close it out here. We're uh, unfortunately at the time it's always happens. Well, I'll close it out by saying how amazingly honored I am to, to have been allowed to connect with through peer spectrum with an old friend and a, and a great American hero. You know, I didn't get a chance to point out his lifetime achievement awards from the university services of the school that he went to that is he is a medical of military merit inductee which is an award for lifetime achievement in army medicine and he and i both share that medal we get to wear around our necks when we're in dress uniforms and his distinguished academic performance awards you know in his amsis award for leadership excellence it just is a, a great great man who's going to continue to do great great things and I, I just appreciate uh, Peer Spectrum giving us the opportunity to reconnect and learn and, you know, blessings to you, Colin, and your organization. And, John, I'll just say, as I said to Bob, when he came on originally, uh, in all sincerity, thank you for your service. Thanks for what you're doing. I mean, it I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Colin. And thank you very much for having me. And, uh, Bob, always great talking with you. Always getting a chance <laughs> to talk to you. We'll, we'll do it soon. You never answer the phone. <laughs> But I know why now you're too If busy. I don't have a half hour, I don't answer the phone. You're right. chatty like a teenage girl. <laughs> well, I'm going to make arrangements to come up and see you. I will. I look forward to it. Well, everyone, uh, thanks again for joining us. Whenever, wherever you listen to us, take care. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.